welcome to the show called Let's Talk Homeschool. I'm Davis, and I am not with my lovely wife. I have a special guest today. Kevin Swanson is going to be with us. So we'll let him give a bio here in a little bit. But this is the show where we talk about everything homeschooling. The who, what, when, where, why, and how. We want to affirm and encourage you in the decision to homeschool. We want to challenge and inspire you to take it all to new heights. And we want to celebrate everything you get to experience along the way in this adventure of a lifetime. This podcast is sponsored by Apologia Educational Ministries. Go to Apologia.com, a great place to explore creation. Today's show is titled Epoch, The Rise and Fall of Education in the West. Okay, Kevin, my guest, let's talk homeschool. So yeah. what I'd love to do start with is just give uh, everybody a, a quick bio Um Kevin is the author of a book called Epoch, The Rise and Fall of the West, and one of the chapters is about the rise and fall of education in the West, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But Kevin, tell our audience a little bit more about you, your family, your homeschool background, and anything else you want to share. Yeah, Davis, it's great to be with you today on the show. You know, um, I was raised out on the mission field in Japan in the 1960s and 1970s, and my parents homeschooled me from 1969 to roughly 1981. And um, so I was sort of the first generation of homeschoolers way back and and uh, began to get involved in student politics with student body president of a major West Coast university in my university years. And then on to running for governor of the state of Colorado uh, and then, you know, married Brenda. We had five children. We started homeschooling right off in the early 1990s and got involved with Christian Home Educators of Colorado. I'm going to say in 1999. So for 24 years, I've been a director, initially an executive director for Christian Home Educators of Colorado. My interest was education, I think almost from the beginning. I can remember teaching at American public schools, actually, in the 1980s. I was a public school teacher for a little while and then on to private schools. I taught at a Christian school in our first year of marriage. It was interesting. I was actually a, a mechanical engineer, but uh, you know, dropped off of that from making 80000 a year to making 9000 a year as a Christian school teacher for, for a short time and then realized I couldn't make a living, you know, that way. So, uh, so got back into the engineering field and then off to uh, Christian Home Educators of Colorado in 1999. So, so the interest was in education. You know, I really was concerned with how we educate our children and saw that this is really ground zero in the war of the worldviews. And this is pretty much D-Day. This is Omaha Beach and <laughs> the war of the worldviews, you know, because we're dealing in the area of worldviews when we introduced education to our children. So, so, uh, so yeah, it's been a, a, a journey. It's been a, a wonderful time just exploring what God's Word have to say about education and uh, trying to understand better the, the war for, of ideas that really plays itself out so much in the schools, the universities, and in education. So really thrilled with what God's doing with homeschooling. I mean, wow, for such a time as this, Davis, you know, yeah. it's amazing. This is a work of God. In the 21st century, this is one of the most positive things that's going on in the entire world right now. And as you know, it's taking off everywhere. I think I've been in 20, 25 countries in the last few years, uh, just getting you know other countries started with education, with homeschooling and uh, Christian education view. And I just came back from Brazil. We were in Portugal, Ukraine the year before that. So, you know, just really seeing that this thing is taking off everywhere around the world. So this is one of the most exciting times to be alive in all of human history. Amen. It, it really is, especially from an education standpoint. Like you say, if people really stop and think about it, homeschooling is one of the most significant social 
cultural and obviously educational movements of the last 50 years that they've been able to witness, even if they didn't homeschool themselves. Mm -hmm. It's just amazing. Amazing. So I just finished reading your book, Epoch. Uh, I'm a mechanical engineer uh, like you. I am not a historian like you, but that's my wife's uh, area of expertise. Uh, But I love reading biographies, which are history, and I love a good history book. You did a great job. It's it's not a short book, 740 pages long, but as I told you, I I still thought of it as a concise summary of the last 2,000 years. We're talking a lot about a lot of events happening that are often obscure and unknown by most people uh, because we tend to think of our lifetimes. So in a nutshell, give us the rise and fall of the West to create some context for the discussion we're going to have. Well, Davis, it is an epoch. I mean, truly, it is an epoch. It's the absolute best word you can use for this amazing story. An epoch is an amazing story that occurred over a long period of time in human history. And that's what happened. I mean, Jesus did something to the world. And I think we need to give him credit for it. I think we have to see the amazing influence that Christianity has played upon science, upon culture, upon human civilization, education as well. Wow, wow, wow. What God did through the Church of Jesus Christ and, you know, godly Christian leaders, uh, pastors, moms and dads over a period of 2000 years. It is a story that needs to be told big time. I'm not the only person who's told it. There's been a number of people who've told the rise and the influence of Christian culture in the West. I think of Vishal Mangwadi's book, The Book That Changed the World. Uh, there's been uh, Alvin Schmidt did a wonderful book on how Christianity changed the world. So there's been some really neat, uh, uh, of course, Francis Schaeffer as well. But uh, but what we need is the full story. And that's what I tried to do. It's the rise and the fall. We're dealing with the fall of a civilization. I believe that the influence that Jesus brought upon the whole world uh, through Western culture is just spread everywhere. The economy, the 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 health issues, the medical advancements, the scientific advancements. I mean, this has just changed the whole world. Praise be to God for what Christians have done. And Christians brought about some of those phenomenal uh, inventions. In fact, I, my calculations was between 95 and 99% of the most significant medical breakthroughs and the most significant uh, technological scientific breakthroughs came through Western Christian scientists. So, uh, that's the bottom line, is Jesus did a big deal upon the entire Western world. But now we're dealing with the fall of a civilization. So we've got to be realistic about what's going on around us. We are dealing with a very significant breakdown of a civilization. And I draw that all out and then try to wrap it up in the last chapter, say, okay, where are we going to go from here? Somebody once said there are those who make things happen. There are those who watch things happen. And then there are those who wonder what happened. OK, so, so our goal is that you are not among the third category of people that's right. wondering what happened. OK, that's the reason for Epoch, the rise and fall of the West. And so it's a visionary book. You know, it's it's OK. Where do we go from here? Kind of book. I'm not the only guy asking these questions. Rod Dreher and others have asked the question. I take it from a Protestant Christian perspective, not so much from Eastern Orthodox or Catholic perspective. Uh, you can read Phil Johnson or uh you know, uh, a lot of other books have been written on the subject um, of, of the fall of Western civilization. But um, I think we're dealing with a, a really massive breakdown right now. 
And we need to wake up and realize what's happening all around us. And I think the very best solution I can think of is what we're doing with the homeschooling movement, the family discipleship movement here in America and around the world. Right. And and I thought you actually did a very fair job balancing um, the Protestant versus Eastern versus Catholic positions. Uh, you were clearly coming from a Christian perspective on seeing God's history unfold because he's got a, a plan. He's just, we're in the last days. And the way I personally would summarize what I read is, you know, there was a thousand years of Christendom where there were some good things happening. It wasn't perfect. There were, uh, there were you know, um, bad things happening within the one church that existed. And then you had a schisms where there, there's a beginning of some fractures and then a decline began ever so slowly. And then when the Reformation came, I was really curious how you're going to treat that. And the way I would summarize it is the decline only accelerated in speed. It, there, it was some good things that happened then, but the decline continued and probably at a faster pace. Then once we met the, got into the Enlightenment and modern ages, again, the slope only got worse to where the last 50 years, it all in our lifetime, we've all seen just how fast things have de are declining. And so that theme uh, I, was definitely one of my big takeaways. So let's get to the education piece. Yes. What kind of education did the apostles, the apostolic church fathers, the early Christians, what did they recommend? What were they trying to have when it came to educating well, of course, he started with the scriptures, no question. They saw Deuteronomy 6, 7 as very core, as sort of the uh, the corpus of a Christian view of education. That's always the Judeo-Christian approach to education. That is, you teach your children the word of God as you sit in the house, as you walk by the way, as you rise up, as you lie down. Raise your children, nurture and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I was amazed at the sheer volume of advice that uh, so many of the church fathers, the apostolic fathers gave to the early Christians because they were dealing with a secular world. That's one of the nice things about reading the early church fathers. They were dealing with the same kind of world we're dealing with. And so they were very strong on this issue. Think of the didascally apostolorum that said, hey, teach your sons handicrafts suitable and helpful to the fear of God, unless by means of idleness they serve voluptuousness and so forth and so on. And he said, keep them away from the books of the heathen. This is very big throughout the history of Christian education. Keep them away from the, the books of those written by non-Christians. Uh, give them the word of God first and foremost. Don't just throw yourself upon the myths of the heathen. And by the way, Augustine said something very similar. He said, you know what, you're going to give your children Homer? Uh, that's just a torrent from hell. Who in the world would pay money to have their children study the, the, the fables of the ungodly? So they're very, very important emphasizing the, the importance of giving your children the books written by uh, Christians. Jerome wrote a very interesting uh, letter to a homeschooling mom. I mean, it's one of the most, probably the beginning of, you know, homeschooling in probably the fourth century where he says, hey, teach your child how to read, uh, teach your daughter the word of God, and then be sure to give your daughter some of the Christian books that have been written uh, throughout the last, you know, several hundred years. And he said, whatever you do, do not give your daughter the books written by unbelievers. So it was always give your children the word of God, first and foremost, teach them to read so they can read the word of God, and then move on to books like Pilgrim's Progress, uh, books written by, you know, Augustine, uh, say the, his confessions or read, you know, a Kempis's imitation of Christ and some of the, some of the classic Christian works. And this is actually was motivated me to encourage 
families all over the world to, to really focus first and foremost on the Christian materials. Give your children a good, solid biblical foundation. Give them a good, solid Christian worldview. And then over time, you introduce some of these other things. Cassiodorus would say the same thing. Probably the mind that established education for the next 1,000 years. He lived right around the 500s. But uh, yeah, you start with the, the Word of God. Give your children uh, the Christian books, the best Christian books you can find, and then introduce perhaps later some of the books written by non-Christians so that they can discern between one or the other. In other words, just like bankers, give your, chi- give your children the good stuff first. Bank tellers receive good money. They get a sense, a feel for the good money. And then eventually, you know, they, they send a counterfeit bill through and then they can identify the counterfeit based upon their knowledge of what is true and what is right. So that's really what you find with the church fathers is uh, be very careful, extremely careful about introducing books written by non-Christians to young children. Okay, so so as that priority of God's Word, starting with that, starting with good books that were clearly Christian, was there a type of school or um, educational philosophy that started to develop during the, the, the first 10 centuries? Well, yes, you have discipleship centers. I would call them discipleship centers. Some call them monasteries. Um, some were celibate, some were not celibate. That is, you know, some you just sign up for celibacy the rest of your life. But that wasn't that wasn't everything. And the idea that there's a kind of one size fits all approach to the entire Christian faith around the world over that period of a thousand years is bogus. Uh, what you find is with the uh, the Scottish Irish Church, they they would allow for uh, their priests or pastors, bishops, et cetera, to be married. And in fact, in some cases, the, the father would hand to the son the pastorate of a church for as many as 15 to 20 generations in a row. You saw that with the Irish churches. So yeah, there was heavy-duty discipleship centers that went on in which they would memorize the Word of God. I mean, that was really essential. They would generally bar uh, teachings from the ancient Greeks and Romans and they would focus upon Christian materials. You you move on into the period of of uh, the 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 eleven hundreds, et cetera, twelve hundreds. You're beginning to to move away from the disciples of centers. Uh, and as they got into the cathedral schools, they abandoned the Word of God as the basis for the study in the cathedral schools, and that eventually moved into the universities in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries, in which the Word of God was pretty much expunged, and Aristotle was introduced. So Aristotle would squeeze out the teachings of God's Word, the discipleship in the content of the Word of God. And so that's when you begin to you know, see a downgrade in terms of, of a Christian view of education. Now, I believe it came out of Aquinas. I, I do look at Aquinas. I mean, there's a lot of controversy over Aquinas. But I do believe that uh, Aquinas gets it wrong when he distinguishes between two forms of knowledge, that form of knowledge built up upon human reason and that uh, other form of knowledge that is based on sacred doctrine or the word of God. So he had these two forms of knowledge and he carved out a special area for knowledge in the university in which you know the word of God would not have to be taught. These were separate in kind. You built up a knowledge on Aristotle's philosophy and you don't really need the word of God. And that sacred secular sec- separation that occurred under Aquinas's uh, epistemology, I think, was what undermined education, eventually led to universities in which the seminary was separated from the philosophical schools or the colleges. 
And then eventually the seminaries were compromised with Unitarianism. And because the Christian doctrine didn't make sense to the, the, the mind of man, the natural mind of man, it didn't make sense in terms of that form of philosophy built up on human reason. Uh, they you know, cast out the doctrine of the Trinity, and the rest is history. Uh, you find the liberalization of the seminaries occurring in the 18th century, the 1700s, and 1800s, and uh, except for you know, some Bible colleges and, and maybe a few exceptions, generally Christianity was, uh, was perverted by, well, by that form of, of, I would say, epistemology. We're going to take a quick break, then return to this conversation. We'll be right back. We want to thank our sponsor, Apologia Educational Ministries. Their mission is to help homeschooling families learn, live, and defend the Christian faith. Apologia is the number one publisher of creation-based curricula for homeschooling families with hundreds of number one awards. Now that's impressive, but more importantly, that's why Apologia is trusted by homeschooling families all across the USA and the world. Go to Apologia.com, a great place to explore creation. Welcome back. Right. Well, and that, that was a, a part of the book that when I was reading that really jumped out at me is that most people would probably say that these really old universities that you know were started in the 11, 12 and 1300s are the model we need to get back to. Or even that the university model like Harvard's and Yale's are the ideals. And they might even agree that they've that they've strayed from Christianity. But most people, I think, still think the university model and having a philosophy department different from a theology department, different from you know the other disciplines, makes sense because we don't know the history and haven't uh, put the previous history in context as you just did. I remember when we first started homeschooling, a scripture that really jumped out to me was 2 Peter 1.3. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. And the challenge for me personally was, what if I could only teach my kids one subject? Would I, do I really feel comfortable only teaching them God's Word? It says that it'll, it's everything they need for life and godliness, and it touches a little bit on what you're saying is uh, most people abandon uh, Bible teaching or make it a lower priority. But you're saying that the separation there actually created a humanistic educational philosophy that, that we've seen and tend to value. Yes. And Davis, this is where I, I came to the conclusion that we cannot do a massive separation between special revelation and natural revelation. Um because God says his word needs to be as a frontlet before our eyes. We find that in Deuteronomy 6, 7, 9. And the word of God is to be accessible, you know, on the gates, on the posts, etc., etc. And uh, the, the word of God, therefore, must be something like eyeglasses through which we view and interpret natural revelation. I think that's the best way to look at it. It's, it's to be so accessible that we're never separating ourselves from it. We don't put away the Word of God, now let's go study science. Put away the Word of God, now let's go study history. No, we retain a biblical viewpoint. We look through the Scriptures in order to better understand the natural revelation that, uh, that comes to us. So to me, that's the biblical explanation for it. 
And uh, of course, the universities did become the battleground. And I, I lay that out in terms of increased Mather's battle for the heart and soul of Harvard, you know, in the 1680s and 1690s. I mean, this was a cosmic battle that was just intense, and yet he lost it to the Latitudinarians, ultimately those guys that were compromising uh, with the Trinitarian faith and, and really bringing in Greek ethics to displace God's word, God's law. And that really bothered Increase Mather, who is the uh, father of Cotton Mather and the second generation of the Mather dynasty. But uh, wow, there was a battle of the heart and soul of Harvard, but it was lost by 1710. It was over. And it, Harvard turned Unitarian shortly after that, and the rest is history. Well, the same thing happened to uh, Yale and then Princeton and so forth. They they fall like flies. Why? I think it's because they, at root, haven't dealt with Aquinas' question, whether or not there are two forms of knowledge. And I would say there's one form of knowledge, two revelations, and we must use the Word of God as the frontlet. So that philosophically is, in other words, let's get rid of the sacred-secular distinction when it comes to education. Let's be sure the Word of God is accessible at every point. Right. So, so is there anything else you'd like to add to what the reformers or uh, what was happening in the 16 and 1700s to keep people going through this flow of educational history we're talking about? You know, there was a love-hate relationship with the universities among the reformers, uh, partially because the universities didn't really like the church either. You know, the Catholic Church was trying to dominate universities and they didn't like it. So so there was this sort of tension between the Protestants and the universities. John Knox's dying words were, beware of the universities. You take Tyndale. Tyndale said, you know, you have to go to these universities uh, to take all this pagan, heathen learning. And after eight or nine years of that, you've been clean shut out of the word of God. So Tyndale complained about it. Martin Luther complained about it. He says universities will become the great gateway to hell. I don't have the quote, but we all know the quote, you know, and he was very concerned about it, as was John Knox, as was Tyndale. So they knew that the universities would become the major problem and they would be the undoing of all of Western civilization. Some of the most prophetic statements come from Luther and Knox on that issue. So that's why my book, I'm like, guys, they were right. <laughs> you know, 400 years later, it turns out it was education that becomes the means of corrupting the churches, the seminaries. It's education that corrupts the K-12 schools. It's education that brings in transgendered bathrooms. It's education that uh, brings in all of the radicalization of, of politics. Uh, you know, you probably wouldn't have gotten such radicalization of politics had it not been for Woodrow Wilson, the president of Princeton University, uh, bringing Darwinism in and then applying it to politics, applying it to government, policy and law. That was Woodrow Wilson's uh, contribution to the 20th century. So it, it really was the university that becomes the Achilles heel and the means by which uh, the secularists get a foothold and then destroy a civilization, certainly undermine a Christian influence, a Christian culture in our civilization. So I do blame education. I think education is the very, very, very core of the battle. And if we don't get it right, and this is why I think we, you know, Davis, you, me, and, and all the leaders and other pastors and leaders, Christian leaders around the country need to come together and say, guys, there is a battle over the hearts and minds of the next generation. It's happening in the universities. It's happening in the schools. And we got to have these conversations. I'm not sure the devil wants us to have the conversation, but I think we do, because this is the means by which uh, our civilization is is being unraveled 
right before our eyes. And, uh, and the Christian faith has very much been, uh, been decimated by this you know, corruption of the university and the seminary. So, yes, the battle is there. Let's engage the discussions. Let's, let's engage the war of ideas in that context. I wanted to read Martin Luther's quote that you referred to. I have it right here. I am much afraid that schools will prove to be the great gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scripture, engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. There you have it, folks. So, so right now, I want you to take us from about 1800 to 1950. So in the early 1800s, there was no public K-12 through system. Uh, but something happened where there was, and then uh, take us through the first you know, 50 to 75 years of public school as we know it today. Noah Webster is one of the most important characters in American history. We've got a chapter on it in our little book, American Faith, which is 27 big nets of the greatest Christians in American history. Uh, there was a professor at uh, Patrick Henry College who wrote a wonderful biography on Noah Webster. I don't have the biography in front of me, but Noah Webster is a key player. And by God's common grace, Noah Webster and William McGuffey, good guys, they play a part in retaining something of a Christian world and life view throughout the 19th century. And I do believe that God preserved our nation. I can't think of any other significant preserving influence upon America in the 1800s, like what you see with Noah Webster and McGuffey. Uh, these are phenomenal men who do a phenomenal thing, and they retain something of a Christian influence upon K-12 education. Nevertheless, you know, there are secular schools that are getting a little bit of a foothold. There was a school in uh, Philadelphia that was sponsored by a well-known atheist. In fact, he was the chairman of the First National Bank of the United States, uh, a Frenchman, an atheist, who who got started funding a secular school in which the Word of God would not be taught, in which pastors were not allowed to enter the, the, the grounds, etc., etc. It was interesting. It was supposed to be a public school in Philadelphia. That went straight to the Supreme Court in the United States. I'm going to say by about the 1820s, 1830s, and the Supreme Court of the United States said, oh, no, 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 you can't have a public school in America that denies God, that does not allow the Bible to be taught, and uh, and, and the, the Constitution of Pennsylvania requires uh, acknowledgment of God, as does the U.S. Constitution. So therefore, they deemed this project unconstitutional, which is very interesting. It wouldn't happen today, but that happened in the 1820s. Um, but then you move into Horace Mann. You get into more the secularization and what some have called the messianic complex of American education. And yeah, they begin to look to the state to, to bring in a, 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 a secular form of education, which, you know, there is no real Christian basis. And part of the reason for that was they didn't want denominations going after each other. They, they wanted the state to control, and therefore they were not going to prefer one religion or one denomination over the other. And so that's why they wanted to come out with a neutral form of education controlled by the state. And so the rest is history. It took, you know, about 60 or 70 years before the compulsory attendance law was approved by all 50 states, including the state of Mississippi. And I think that was approved by 1917. So, so a public school system was put in place between roughly 1845 and 1917. And then, of course, John Dewey is bringing out a distinctively atheistic, secular form of education in the K-12 schools 
and that's in the first part of the 20th century, and the rest is history. Prayer comes out of the schools in the 1950s, 1960s, thanks to the U.S. Supreme Court decision, uh, and the Word of God was no longer allowed. And uh, so that's pretty much the end of Christian education over a period of 2,000 years of Western history. So I remember I grew up going to public school in the 60s and 70s, uh, went to a, a Christian college and to a state non-Christian college. Uh, but I remember as a young kid saying the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, actually saying prayers through about third grade. I don't remember uh, any like formal prayers happening uh, past that. But what has happened in the last 50 years? I mean, we've all seen it. We've lived it. But as you said, in many ways, we shouldn't be surprised. This has been history in the making. Uh, we're really just living out the logical conclusion of things that happened starting in the 11 and 1200s, slowly but surely, faster and faster. So give us the one-minute summary of where we are today, but then let's expound upon what do we do? Where do we go from here? Well, first of all, they gained state control over all K-12 schools, and that you know came about over a period of time. And then they turn it over to the humanists, the atheists, and they disallow the prayer in school in 1963 and 1987. The Edwards case uh, ruled against uh, teachers who wanted to teach creationism. So that came in 1987. And they stated that only a secular religion or secular worldview would be allowed henceforth in government schools. And any indication that a supernatural being created mankind would be henceforth disallowed in American public schools. That came in 1987. And then in 2012, you had the California mandate for the instruction in homosexuality for children 6 to 18 years of age. And uh, that has continued throughout uh, most of the Western world. Now, the mandating of teaching on homosexuality or the encouragement of the sin of homosexuality has uh, become almost universal in Western nations. Um, so, you know, you, you've got such a, a, a aggressive secularist approach to education and to morals. Uh, don't forget that, you know, this idea of encouraging transgenderism, homosexuality in the public schools is a, a means by which to bring a nihilistic form of ethics into the world. And I see it as undermining a civilization itself. The, your civilization cannot continue at this rate. Uh, you also see a breakdown of education itself. The educational standards tend to break down over time. Uh, the the, the parents are coming back and they're beginning to see something of an issue with this. And there has been something of a resurgence of parental interest in education. And that's one reason why the governor of Virginia won his race in 2020. Uh, Florida governor is doing very well. Thank you very much. Largely due to the fact that he's emphasizing parental rights. So this is one of the positives that's come out of the 2020, 2022 elections. And I think it may be an influence that's brought about by homeschoolers who, of course, have been the people fighting tooth and nail for parental rights in the state capitals for the last 30 years. It's always been the homeschoolers that are down there for you know parental rights when it comes to immunizations, parental rights when it comes to education, parental rights when it comes to compulsory attendance laws. Always been homeschoolers crowding into the educational committee rooms and but now it does appear that this this idea that these professionals these bureaucrats are going to properly raise our children give them a right ethic and give them right forms of character and a good education i think parents are less and less enamored with that concept 
In fact, uh, Gallup has done this poll of public support for education since the 1970s, and what we find is it just goes down, 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 down every year, and I think it's down to about 20 to 25 percent of Americans now are supportive of the public schools, down from the 60, 70 percentile way back in the 1970s. So, you know, people are disenchanted with public schools, disenchanted with government. They're finding that this messianic state of American education has been a total failure. And parents are coming back and saying, you know what, we're going to make these decisions for our kids now. And that has transformed. Uh, this is the only positive thing that I know. The pro-life issue hasn't gained that much ground in the legislative elections. Uh, we haven't seen that the gun issue does that much. We haven't seen that you know the taxation issue does all that much. But when it comes to parental rights, oh, man. Oh, man, that's that's why the Republican won the Virginia race in 2020. So, you know, I think I think something's re resonating in the hearts of parents. And I do believe it is parents who are pretty much the last uh, vanguard for uh, for sustaining something of some liberty, something of a civilization, something of a future for our children and our grandchildren. It's probably not going to be any other part of uh, the population that that will you know, salvage something out of what we're dealing with right now. We are seeing a breakdown of economy. We are seeing a breakdown of economy. We're seeing a breakdown of culture, we're seeing a breakdown of, of society. We're seeing birth implosions in 80 plus nations around the world. Uh, so where are we going to go from here? I, I think we're going to see that uh, homeschooling, family discipleship, parents turning their hearts to the children, children to the parents is the one thing that could salvage uh, our future families, churches, and our civilization. Yeah, the, amen. I mean, obviously, I am a homeschool proponent, an advocate, and uh, you know, you referenced Malachi four six, which is uh, it encapsulates um, the large part of what happens when you begin to homeschool as a parent. Part of it's because your heart is turning more towards your kids. You thought you loved your kids, but now you want to love and protect them, and you want to be in charge of their education, their upbringing, their discipleship. And th there's so much that happens to a parent's walk of faith that says, I'm, I'm willing to do this hard work. It's not easy. It's certainly a paradigm shift for families who always thought, hey, my kid turns five, six, or seven, you send, ship them off to school and let the experts you know, do it. But when these other negative things are happening, whether they're social or negative academic uh, things or negative religious things happening, and parents say, okay, enough's enough. I'm going to be the parent. I'm going to take my rights back. These are my kids, and I'm going to be responsible. Uh, and that's what we've seen. And that's yeah. what we're seeing, especially, uh, um, I like to say that COVID was the best marketing plan most yeah. companies never came up with. Yeah. It, it caused people to have a wake-up call and to say, maybe they always wanted to, but they were afraid, but they had this two-month mandatory trial run of homeschooling, and they realized, hey, this, this is actually good for our family. This is good for the kids. We, I think we could do this. And they, they gave it a shot and realized after two or three years, you know what? This is not just good. This is great for all of us. Mm. And it's great for my own walk of faith. So yes. there's so much that happens when you begin homeschooling. It's so much more than just about the academics. You, you said it. You said it. Davis, you know, and in that verse, in the very, very last verse of the Old Testament, you better see that the hearts of the fathers turn to the children, children turn back to the fathers. 
lest I strike the world with a curse. Yeah, okay, that's yeah. the way the whole Old Testament ends, which means heads up. Wow, this may be the one thing to preserve our nations. Can you yeah. imagine that? that for such a time as this, God has raised up home education, family discipleship as a means of preserving a nation, preserving mm -hmm. a civilization. And so, yeah, just a big challenge for us as, as parents. But uh, wow, it's, it's just, I think, the most beautiful thing that God has raised up the homeschooling movement. And as you said, through the COVID years, increased it by another 20, 35 percent. Amen. So we're going to wrap this up. But is there anything you'd like to uh, say that you didn't get to say in the last minute or two here? Well, just to encourage parents, just encourage parents to, you know, keep the word of God as a front. Like, keep the word of God right there. Disciple your children in God's word every day as you sit in the house, as you walk by the ways you rise up, as you lie down. Turn your hearts back to your children, children to the parents. And let's just encourage a discipleship motif. We're not just stuffing facts into kids' heads here. We're um, we're preparing them. We're we're preparing them for worship and for life and to just reverence God and see more of the awesomeness of God. I mean, one of the key elements that we abs absolutely must cover is that the fear of God or the reverence of God or a recognition of the awesomeness of God is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom in the science classes. And I know that's your commitment and your curriculum, and that's our commitment as well for our curriculum. We just really want to see more people, more kids, more parents just seeing the awesomeness of God and then coming out of that class, worshiping God for the amazing things that he's created. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, it's time to bring this conversation to a close. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us again next time. And if you liked what you heard, please write a review, share it with your friends, or send us an email. That would be podcast at apologia.com. This has been Let's Talk Homeschool. And my special guest was Kevin Swanson, this is Davis Carmen signing off. This podcast is sponsored by Apologia Educational Ministries. Go to Apologia.com, a great place to explore creation. Have a great day, and until next time, we are walking by faith and enjoying the homeschooling adventure of a lifetime.